Most everybody looks awake, even losing an hour of sleep. You're doing pretty good. See how I do. Before we jump in, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 15, so you can start flipping there. But before we jump in, I just wanted to say a few personal notes of, of first of all, thanks for all the love and, and prayers that uh, was sent to me and my family as we were gone. We missed being here last Sunday. I was thankful that Jim filled in and preached for us. So thank you for that. We felt the love. We felt the prayers. Uh, also, just wanted to uh, say I heard uh, an important announcement was made last Sunday, and I just want to, uh, while I was, I was sad not to be here, um, just want to say that um, I'm very thankful for the committee's work. I'm, I'm, uh, it's one of the greatest honors of my life to be a pastor here, and um, I'm grateful beyond words. So um, I know we have a few more steps to take, but um, I'm always available to talk. If you have any questions for me, but just keep praying. We love you guys. Thankful to be here. Thank you. All right, enough of that. We've got to go through a lot of verses today. First Samuel 15. We're going to be going through the whole chapter. <clears throat> and just to give you more of an overview, just a reminder where we are, this is taking us through the beginning of the monarchy, the beginning of the kings of Israel. And this is our first king we've been looking at as Saul. In, verse, in chapters 13 through 15, it's been, it's been bad. It's been difficult for Saul. He's been showing why his, his kingship wasn't going to last. And in this chapter, we see finally that he is rejected ultimately by the Lord in his final disobedience. So we're going to read uh, as to what takes place there. So if you're able to stand, please stand. If you can't stand because it's a very long passage, it's okay. We, don't, we won't judge you. But we stand to honor God's word. Well, this is God's word. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but... Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them to Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the city. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For I showed kindness to all the people of it. You showed kindness to all the people of Israel. When they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Well, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I perform the commandment of the Lord. 
And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And that he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, there's a lot in this passage, but would you reveal to us your nature of who you are in our nature, our sinful nature, like Saul, to disregard you and your commandments. Father, would you open our eyes to the truth of your gospel, the good news of your promises to us in Christ. Bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Robert Murray McShane. It's a profound insight from the old 19th century Scottish preacher. 
your prayer life, or lack thereof, reveals who you are and what you really want. Who you are when no one else is looking, when the door is closed, and it's just you and God. That's what God sees most clearly. He looks into your heart. Your dependence upon God or your independence from God reveals who you are most deeply. So with Saul, as we finish up this section on Saul, strip away the kingships, strip away the honors, take away the victories in battle, and ask who is Saul the man? What are we looking at here? What do we, what do we see when you remove all of this? And as we do that this morning, how about you? Strip away your job. Take away your callings, your titles, your family, your achievements, praise of men, and ask yourself this morning, who are you before God? Who are you? Who am I? You see, when God begins to take our measurements, as it were, morally, spiritually, ethically, we need to ask, where do we land on that scale? What matters most when God looks at us? We're going to see this morning that we're measured by God on three main criteria as he measured Saul in this passage. He looks at our actions, he looks at our character, and then he looks at our repentance. So he looks at those three things. Those are going to be our three main ideas. First, our actions. Our actions. Saul, as we can see, has not performed God's command. What is the command? Look at verses 1 through 3, and then we'll look at verse 9. He tells, he tells Saul, the Lord sent me to an-. So Samuel comes to Saul. He says, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. That's the first commandment. Listen to the words of the of the Lord. That's the first place Saul begins to struggle, isn't it? And then he tells him to go to the Amalekites and destroy them. Destroy them. We're going to talk about that difficult idea, destroying everything of this people. But then we skip down to verse 9 and see what happens. Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, it would not utterly destroy them. So it's a, it's a clear picture, right, of his disobedience. He's not performing God's commands. There's two difficult issues in this passage that you can probably already pick up on. The first is this idea of harem warfare. Harem is the Hebrew word for devoting to destruction Everything that's living, man, woman, infant, child, cattle, everything of this people group. So that's the first difficult issue I'll talk about. The second difficult issue we're going to get to later is the idea of God regretting, the idea of God repenting, depending on your translation of things. But first, let's, let's tackle this first difficult issue. For 21st century Americans, this feels is just wrong for God to command this, doesn't it? How do we as 21st century Americans make sense of God's command in warfare 
that included the killing of civilians in this way. Well, first we need to think about, okay, God has judged people and, and killed people before. In the Bible, the flood, for instance, killed, wiped out humanity at that point. And no one was spared except Noah and his family. You can think about the plagues on Egypt and the death of the firstborn uh, of the nation of Egypt. But this feels different. It feels more difficult, doesn't it, when God uses humans, ag- human agents to do this kind of judging and this killing. Well, the first question I want to ask is, most, a lot of people will reject this and say, how can you worship this God? This is ethnic cleansing. This is genocide. So is this, is that true? Is this ethnic cleansing? The answer is no. And I'll, let me explain. In Deuteronomy, it prov- God provided for two types of warfare. Two types of warfare. The first kind of warfare was battles fought outside of the promised land. And then there were battles and rules for battles fought inside the promised land. The first type, outside, allowed Israel to spare people, and the second type, inside the promised land, didn't allow Israel to spare anyone. It's called harem practice. It's, it's, it's meant devotion or consecration to destruction and a devotion to God. It was a sacred act of fulfilling divine judgment. And so it's outside of our current categories of warfare and the rules we think about of war. It's outside of those categories. It's different. It's wholly different. Even though... Justin Taylor writes, even though the destruction is commanded in terms of totality, there seems to have been an exception for those who repented, turning to the one true and living God. For example, at Jericho, when the walls fell down, uh, Rahab and her family, because she repented, because she helped the spies, she was saved and all her family. Another example in Joshua 11 is the Gibeonites. They were also spared because they joined with uh, Israel and believed in God. So what this means is that the reason for the destruction of God's enemies was precisely because of their rebellion and according to God's justice. Not because of their ethnicity, not because of their skin color, not because of their language or anything like that or where they were from. It was because of rebellion against God. Ethnic cleansing and genocide, we've heard of that and it's happened in it throughout history, refer to a destruction of a people due to their ethnicity, and therefore this would be an appropriate category, an inappropriate category, sorry, for the destruction of the Canaanites and the Amalekites. Justin Taylor says, the destruction of the Canaanites and the Amalekites is a picture of the final judgment. And if we go back and read about the Amalekites, who they were and what they did to Israel, and back in Deuteronomy 25, God says, remember what Amalek did to you when they were in the wilderness. Amalek, at one point, the, 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 the nation, military, came to the, to the backside of Israel as they're going through the wilderness and took out the weakest of Israel and killed the innocent people of Israel. And so this is really vengeance. This is God's justice on the Amalekites. Tim Mackey says, Israelite conquest of Canaan is described as an act of divine punishment on an extremely corrupt society. But God is consistent 
and he doesn't play favorites. He warned that the Israelites, that if they broke the covenant and adopted the culture and religious practices of, of these people, they would face the same consequences. That Israel ultimately was going to be held to the same standard of worshiping the true God. It was clearly stated in the covenant agreement that if they behaved in the same way as the Canaanites, Yahweh would treat them as his enemy and inflict upon them the same punishment. We read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? The book of Judges tells about this decline of Israel slowly becoming Canaanized to look just like the rest of the nations. And when we read about these, this kind of warfare and this kind of judgment on people, it's important to remember that God has creator rights over every living thing. He's got creator rights over you and I. He's numbered our days, and he can take us out whenever he wants. Because he is just and he is, he is right in all that he does. But this is about God's holiness, most importantly. And an important thing I want to explain is that whenever you think of the promised land, and them entering the promised land. Think about the Garden of Eden. When you, when you think promised land, think this is a new Garden of Eden. That when they're coming into this land, it's supposed to be holy. There's supposed to be no sin. There's supposed to be uh, no sinners in this, in this place. And when we go back to Deuteronomy 20, we talk about the two different kinds of warfare. The second kind in the land says, the Lord your God is giving you an inheritance. You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. You see, in the Garden of Eden, it was holy. It was perfect. And when Adam was tested, when the serpent came in his presence, and in, in Eve's presence, what was Adam supposed to do? What did he fail to do? What he should have done is stomped on the head of that serpent and killed it because it was evil. It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be in there, and he failed that test. And so what happened? They, Adam and Eve, had to be expelled, which is what we see in the future of Israel, that they go into exile. And the last thing I want to say about this difficult issue is that Israel was a theocracy. A theocracy. That means God was king over this nation. Uh, we live... Currently in America, we do not live in a theocracy. So if Israel was a theocracy, it was a type of warfare for a very unique reason, entering the promised land in a very limited time in Israel's history. The only time we'll ever, God will ever establish a new theocracy will be when Jesus finally returns again. And he'll destroy all of his and our enemies. And the judgment we read about in the Old Testament will pale in comparison to the judgment that will come when Jesus returns. So that is a picture right, of the ultimate judgment. Our salvation always coincides with the judgment of, of the rebellious and of sinners. They go together. So we see that Saul does not complete this. Who, who does he save, or who does he allow to be saved? The, the animals, the sheep. Why does he say that? Because he wants to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So what is, what is Samuel's response? Look at verse 22 and 23. He says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. What he's telling Saul is, it's better for you to obey than to rely on my grace and, 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 and offer sacrifices. Because yes, God is merciful, but he wants more than that, our obedience. It's like if someone here in our church decides to live their week controlled and ruled by greed and lust and anger all week, treating their family poorly, angry at everyone, living lustfully, committing adultery, living by greed and, and, and only wanting more and more money, money and things, and then shows up for church on Sunday, offers prayers to God and, and service, knowing that all their sins are going to be forgiven on Sunday. What does Paul say to that in Romans 6? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you've tasted of the grace of God, how can you continue to live in sin? He says, continues in Romans 6, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he says, present yourselves. So Christians, we're to present ourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. In verse 14 of chapter 6 of Romans, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. Brothers and sisters, grace is not a reason to sin. It's a reason to obey. Grace is not a reason to sin, but to obey. And that's what Saul should have known. That God is a gracious God. But we ought to obey Him. But what else does Saul do? So he presumes on God's grace, but he also blame shifts. Again, we've, we've seen him do this many times. Look at verse 15. He says, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So he's saying, the people did this. Oh yeah, of course, the people I'm in charge of. But they did this. And in verse 21, he, he repeats that idea. But the people Look at the spoil, the sheep and the oxen. He's blaming, he's pointing. Saul is really good at blaming others for his shortcomings. Why do we do that? Why do you and I point the finger when we are feeling like we've done something wrong? The answer is because guilt, we have to do something with our guilt, don't we? We've got it. We've got to get our guilt off of us. We've got to send it somewhere else. We've got to give it to some, somebody else. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to own our guilt. It has to be dealt with. It has to be put on somebody's shoulders. And this is a theme throughout Scripture. In the garden, who does Adam blame? Well, the woman you gave me, God. He points the finger to the woman and to God. And another classic example of blaming is Aaron and the golden calf in Exodus 32. It's actually quite funny because of how bad he is of telling a lie. It says as to what happens when Moses is up on the mountain and Aaron's with the people. 
he takes all the gold, it says, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. That's actually what happened. That's what Aaron did. But this is how Aaron spins it. This is the story he tells when Moses gets back. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They, they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It's pretty good there. Pretty good story. That's not true. We're always trying to remove our guilt and blame and point the finger. So Saul follows God. He's, he's, he's a pretty good follower of God, but he only does it when it's convenient. When it's convenient for him and not difficult. When it suited him, Saul obeyed. When it was inconvenient, he disobeyed. Brothers and sisters, God demands 100% obedience. So that's our first problem. God looks at our actions, and we're not 100% obedient. That's our first strike. Let's also look at our character. God looks at our character. Look at verse 28. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That's quite a character statement, isn't it? Who is better than you? That is the assessment now of what Saul has become, someone who is just not measuring up, when his actions are revealing his character. If any of you had children, you know that your children will act a certain way, which is in, in according to their character. But sometimes they'll do, do things that are just out of their character. It's like, that, that's not like them to act like that. So like when they're sick... Uh, they act out of character. Uh, often they'll act more tired. They lay on the couch. They're quieter. They're sometimes more peaceful when they're sick. But when you see a pattern of behavior that continues, you see it day after day, week after week, that's not just out of character. It actually becomes their character. It becomes who they are quite a bit. Because our actions reveal who we are ultimately. And so for Saul, this happens again and again. We have example after example of disobedience to the Lord where it becomes ultimately his character. Paul Tripp writes that failure is not the inability to produce desired results. Failure is not the inability to produce desired results. You see, what God was asking Saul was not to figure out what the, or to guarantee results in battle or guarantee any kind of result. But it was just faithfulness. It was just obedience to God. That's all he wanted. And so that was his ultimate failure. Tripp continues, he says, True failure is rooted in laziness and pride and lack of discipline and self-excusing, failure to plan well, lack of joy in labor, and failure to persevere during hardship. Failure is not first a matter of results. Failure is always first a matter of the heart. It's failure when I have not invested my God-giving time and energy and gifts in the work of God that He's called me to do. Laziness and unfaithfulness 
our failure. But here's what God asks of us. Tripp writes, faithfulness is what God asks of us. The rest is entirely up to his sovereignty and the power of his grace. There's so much in our lives we can't control. We cannot control outcomes. We cannot control so many things and the results of our lives. But what God asks us for is basic obedience and faithfulness. Basic obedience and faithfulness. So we see that this is the true failure. It's his character and not trusting in the Lord. Another character mark we see of Saul is in verses 17 through 19. Samuel says to him, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Notice what Samuel says when he begins that section. Though you are little in your own eyes, That's a revealing statement as to how Saul views himself, isn't it? You see, sometimes we question God's commands and callings upon our lives because we're so fixated on ourselves. We're so fixated either on our shortcomings or or fixated on how how good we think we are. And so either way, we question what God is doing and is calling upon us because we're looking so much at ourselves. And so Saul, what was his issue? He thought little of himself. He had forgotten that it was the Lord who called him to be king. He was so thinking about his shortcomings that it continued to help um, hinder him. Do you question God's ability to equip you to lead where you've been called? Do you question that? I often will tell young husbands and fathers that you will lead your family whether you want to or not. That you are a leader in your family. God's designed it that way for husbands and fathers to lead their families. You're going to lead whether you want to or not. You're either going to lead your family to blessing or to ruin. But you're going to lead. It's the same thing with Saul. He was going to lead Israel whether in a good way or in a bad way. And he didn't see himself in the same way God did. And this isn't about being prideful. It's about walking in faith because you know God is capable and he will be with you. You see, Saul was always more concerned with what other people thought of him. Verse 12, we read that Saul sets up a monument to himself to honor himself before the people. In verse 24, he admits, I feared the people. And one of the last things we read in verse 30, he wants Samuel to honor him before the people. Would you honor me? You see, he's always thinking about what people are thinking about me. That has become his character. But that's not the last word we see from Saul. We see some aspects of a repentance, don't we? We see some regret. Before we jump into Saul's regret, let's first look at this difficult issue of God's regret and God's repentance or change with Saul's kingship. 
Verse 11, we read it. It's straightforward. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. But then what's difficult is verse 29 says the opposite. (laughs) And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So he's regretting, but God doesn't regret. And in verse 35, we see that again, the Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. What's going on here? Is God regretting or not regretting? Let's zoom out, first of all. Where else do we see this word, regret, as it pertains to God? Well, we read about it in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created. So it regretted, he regretted that he'd made man on the earth because man was so evil. So there's the question. Can God regret, repent, and feel sorry for how things play out? How do we answer that? Well, the first thing we need to think about is this idea of anthropomorphism. Big word. But it's basically this, that sometimes... The grammar of Scripture uses the grammar of humanity, people, to communicate the truth about deity. Grammar of humanity to talk about deity. And sometimes Scripture stoops to use human categories to tell the truth about a God far beyond all our, all our categories. We're trying to grasp the infinite God with this kind of language. And he's stooping down to use our language. So a few examples of this in the scriptures are, are the use of God's right hand. That God will save you by his right hand. Right? It's not literal, it's figure, figurative. Also, God rested on the seventh day. Another use of figurative language. Anthropomorphism. He's using human language to describe God. So that's the first thing we need to understand. The second is that God is truly sad over sin. Del Ralph Davis says, it's a tragedy when Saul refuses to be Yahweh's disciple. It grieves Yahweh. Yahweh, God is not a you win some, you lose some kind of God. Nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of the true God. And so when it says that I regret that I made Saul king, it does not intend to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. We need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. I love that Del Ralph Davis says. God is no cold slab of concrete. Did you know that every time you choose to disobey God, it grieves him? It grieves him to his heart. Anyone here, as you were growing up, did you ever cause your parents grief? Were you that child who was always making your parents sad about what you've done? And isn't that way worse? If you think back to a time you really made your parents sad about something, isn't that way worse than just merely angering them or making them angry? Making them sad is hard to bear. You see how you've let them down. You see how you disappointed them. It's the same way with God. He grieves over our disobedience. 
And so there is a, a, a type of paradox here where God never changes his mind. He never changes who he is, but he is responding to his creation. He's responding to how we live and the things we choose. He is saddened over our sin. Dale Ralph Davis says, Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. One of the greatest examples of this in the Gospels is is Jesus in John chapter 11 and his friend Lazarus dying. And when they tell him Lazarus is sick, Jesus immediately says to everybody, "This this will not end in death. This will glorify me, the Son of God. He says that, so he knows what's going to happen. Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. But as he goes and, and is with his friends, his best friends, and he sees their grief, what does he do? He weeps. And he's angry over the sin in the world and death. God is both firm and he has feeling. And Jesus portrays that perfectly. So that's, that's just touching on it. You could talk more and more about this idea of God regretting. But we'll leave it there for now. And then let's turn to the repentance or regret that Saul shows. So let's look at verses 24 and 25 and look at um, what Saul does here. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. So here we see Saul is is showing some signs of repentance. But I still don't think he gets it. I still think, think he is considering his own glory. He wants to still look good in front of people. And he has one last act of desperation. He grabs Samuel's robe. Look at verses 27 and 28. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So it's almost in anger. He's grabbing at Samuel's his robe and it tears and it becomes this judgment sign against against Saul that his kingdom is now being torn away from him. Our actions and our character aren't enough. Saul's actions and his character was not enough. We need repentance. We need to come to God with nothing in our hands but desperation. And as I thought about him reaching out and touching the robe of Samuel, there's this parallel story of a woman reaching out and grabbing the cloak robe of Jesus that I read earlier from Luke chapter 8. It reminded me of that and how she came to him when she had nowhere else to turn. Let me just read a few verses from Luke 8 as we close this morning. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind Jesus, and she she just merely touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased, and she was healed. Jesus says, who was it who touched me? 
And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are coming around you. Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. She had... She was not healed by anyone throughout her whole life. For years and years, she had this malady. But in faith, and just reaching out and touching Jesus, healed her instantly. Because she had nowhere else to turn. It wasn't about her glory. It wasn't about who she was. She just needed Jesus. And he healed her. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That's the king that Samuel was not that Saul was not, and that David points to, but he was not as well. That's the king we all need. As we were gone last weekend to my brother-in-law's church, he preached on kindness, the kindness of God, and, and how we're to be kind as well. And he's, he also teaches at a private school there, and he says he always, or he always begins the semester asking The students, can you think of a time in the Gospels where Jesus ever turned someone away who wanted to be healed? They they said they wanted to be healed by Jesus. Is there ever a time where he refused them and he wouldn't do it? No. I can't think of a time either. He always healed those who came to him. And that is the same truth for you and I this morning. If you come to Jesus... He'll take your sin. He'll take everything that is on your shoulders, your guilt, your blame shifting, everything. He'll take it upon himself. And he did that on the cross. So if you have not turned to him, if you do not know him, turn to him. Reach out and touch his garment and you will be healed. Let's pray together. Father, it's, um, it's sobering to read these stories of, of Saul, but it's good warning for us as well. So we thank you that you put it in Scripture for us to learn from, that, that Father, we need you. We need you. We need, we need Jesus, and we need his strength, we need his healing. And we thank you that we have a king that is better than Saul and David and Samuel. He's perfect in all his ways and righteous. So, Father, help us to run to him for salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.